There was one estate sale years ago that we went to, really before I even collected, and my wife said, hey, look at that record player. And it had 78s, you know, that were being sold with it. And she said, you need a hobby to keep you from stressing out and you work too much and you work too hard and too long. And so, you know, this is something that'll help you relax. And of course, what do I do? I turn it into an academic enterprise, right? Or a project. So my, my name is Richard Bro, and I am a, an associate professor of ethnic and racial studies at the University of Wisconsin-La Crosse. And I am a 78 RPM record collector as well. In 2015, I went to an estate sale on the north side of La Crosse. They only posted a few photos online. One of those had like a 1960s looking record player and stereo. And then on top of that was like an 80s boombox, <laughs> right? So I said, well, there's clearly someone listened to music, so I'm just gonna give it a shot. I drove to the house, you know, I walked through the kitchen, walked into another room, saw the stereo there, and then I saw some 78 album, you know, booklets. The first one I, I looked through was kind of your typical what a 78, you know, record collector finds at most estate sales. So there was your Bean Crosby's and your Fink Sinatra's. The next album I opened up was filled with labels I had never seen before, right? So the writing on the labels were either in Arabic script uh, or they were a combination of transliterated Arabic and Arabic. They were, you know, Maloofs and Maksuds and Arab phone and Alum phone. Had no idea um, how any of it had gotten there or anything like that at first. And so I bought about 20 discs and I left about 40 or 50 there. Because I belong to this community of 78 record collectors on Facebook, you know, I snapped a couple photos and I posted them and I said, well, look what I found here, you know? And so people started to chime in and a couple of people said, oh man, those are awesome. And I said, yeah, I left probably about like 40 or 50 there. And they said, go back and get them, right? So, <laughs> so that's what I did. After doing some, some researching, you know, I realized that lacrosse had a Syrian and Lebanese American community. That was on a Saturday. Monday morning, I was in the public library trying to find out something about this community, who people were. That first group of 78s belonged to, um, to Siad Addis, um, and he was born in 1880 and had immigrated from Rashaya Fakar. He was a mill worker here in La Crosse. So La Crosse had a number of lumber mills um, and had some shoe factories and, and things like that. And so Addis was a, was a mill worker, but he and his wife raised their eight children in the house where I found, where I found the records on, on the north side. And so his children um, would grow up to, you know, to pursue a whole host of, of professions and things like that. One of his daughters, Elaine Addis, died in 2015. You know, it was her estate, essentially. She was really the last of the first generation U.S. born of that household to, to live there and to survive. And so, um, you know, the family decided that they were going to put whatever they didn't want up for sale up for sale as a part of this estate and you know and and the records were were a part of that
I mean, one of the things that you have to remember is around the time, one, around the time that I I come across the first uh, the first collection or the first group of, of 78 is the same time that the former governor of Wisconsin is saying, I'm not taking any Syrian refugees, right? And the governor of Iowa is saying, I'm not taking any Syrian refugees. The La Crosse Syrian and Lebanese uh, American community has been here for well over 100 years. The La Crosse community has this direct connection to the Chicago World's Fair, the Columbian Exposition in, in 1893. There is literally a, an article in the 1916 La Crosse Tribune that talks about the fact that a number of the first and founding members of La Crosse's Syrian and Lebanese American community worked at the World's Fair. Some of them were doing pottery there. They had things that were left over, you know, surplus that they didn't sell at the fair. And in deciding to to stay in the United States, people, you know, they hit the roads in terms of peddling and things like that. And the article clearly points out that there's this direct link between people who leave Chicago just after the, the fair. Some go to Janesville, some go to Milwaukee, some go to Fond du Lac, some go to Eau Claire, which is about an hour north of La Crosse, and some go to La Crosse. And they arrive around 1894, and they have relatives that they send for. They, you know, some of them start as peddlers. Like I said, some of them start in the lumber mills. You know, they take on a number of professions, but families hear that these individuals are, are in Wisconsin, they're in La Crosse. And and people began to come and those numbers grow so that, you know, by 1906, you have the establishment of a Syrian Melkite church on La Crosse's north side and what what the La Crosse press called the Syrian colony of La Crosse. There's a sizable enough population uh, of about 300 or so by the time the, the Melkite church is established. So 1906 is about when it's established with Father Philip Salmoni as the, as the priest. And then by 1908, they have a building. A few years later, there's some conflict in the community. So I don't want to paint a picture like everything's rosy and people just come and they immigrate and everyone gets along. So there's conflict with, within that community and between, you know, one of the parishioners and Father Salmoni and the birth of the Syrian Orthodox Church comes out of that conflict. So this family says, you know what? Yeah, you're not going to insult our family. We're going to establish. So, you know, the, the, the Orthodox Church is, is established by 1909 and by 1912, they have, um, you know, they have a building as well. So you have these community institutions that exist. You have increasingly by the 1910s, people who are making that transition from peddler to storefront owner. And so in many ways, that's it's, it's kind of the, the typical narrative. The Syrian and Lebanese immigrant population are completely transforming lacrosse in some interesting ways. I mean, people establish restaurants. So a guy by the name of Philip Jabour, you know, he establishes a restaurant downtown. He manages to purchase a small hotel, 
and he's you know he runs this hotel and then he purchases a small movie house on the north side so I mean, this guy is, a, is an entrepreneur, right? I mean, he has a restaurant, a hotel, and a movie theater. <laughs> and, it, and it's pretty remarkable. And then, interestingly, he's one of the first people to sign up to fight in World War I from La Crosse County. So he's just, a, he's just an incredible, incredible figure for, for a number of reasons. What is interesting about lacrosse and makes it unique from some of the larger cities that uh, like Boston and Detroit and, and New York is that in lacrosse, the population of Arab Americans peaks around 1917, 1918. Uh, and there are a number of things going on. The lumber industry is starting to collapse. And so that contributes to the economy falling, but also lacrosse isn't immune to racism. You know, in 1915, Birth of a Nation shows in the theater locally. Uh, you begin to see reports in the newspaper by 1920, peaking about 1922 and through like 1925-26 of local chapters of the Ku Klux Klan. Most Syrian and Lebanese immigrants particularly that came to La Crosse, were not Protestant. And, and so the Klan is amping up some of the, the terror towards people who are not Protestant. And Syrian Americans are and Syrian immigrants are among those people. And so some of those folks leave about this time. Our Lady of Lords Syrian Melchai Church closes by the mid-1920s. So it doesn't have enough of a congregation to even maintain itself anymore and people begin to migrate on to California. Some go to Toledo, Ohio. Some also go to Detroit, just north of Detroit, the Port Huron area, uh, and Marysville, Michigan. And so there are people who, who leave lacrosse and goes to go to those communities as as well. To find this additional information about the, I mean, the serious presence of the Ku Klux Klan here in La Crosse, in, in some ways it made it all make sense, right? Um, and, and that's because if you study race and ethnicity in the United States, it's almost that I expected rather than not. And so I was waiting for something to show up. I didn't know exactly what, but then... Once the evidence is there in terms of the documentation, you know, it's as clear as day in terms of, of what happens. There's obviously this backlash. And, and the interesting the interesting part of this is that Lacrosse pretty much becomes a sundown town by the 1920s as well. And so there are very few opportunities for other people of color 
Um, and, and, and so for African-Americans, there were very limited opportunities. They weren't a, a strict sundown town in the sense that they didn't allow anyone to live within the city limits who was not white. But what they did was they restricted the employment opportunities to such that people didn't want to stay. And so those shrinking economic opportunities then essentially forced people to want to leave because there's not much here here for them. And, you know, so it's, it's not surprising to me. There's, there's both a a black exodus and an Arab immigrant, Arab American exodus. At least some of the some of the Arab Americans who were established enough to have, you know, their own family business, often stayed, and so and 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 their their you know grandchildren and great grandchildren in some cases are are here in in La Crosse. But if you were dependent on something other than yourself to make a living or an income, things became pretty rough. You know, I I can't. I can't blame anyone for packing up and saying, "Okay, you know what? Let's go to Toledo where some other people are Arabic speaking or our cousin or our uncle lives. Whoever got a job, a job at the tire factory or or the automobile plant. Let's let's go there instead. And people certainly certainly did that, including uh, a really interesting character um, who you probably have heard of before. But George Addis was an early activist with the United Auto Workers. And he, uh, he, he lived in Toledo for a time, and I know that he had some involvement with the huge Toledo strikes in terms of the automobile plants there. And then he becomes one of the first secretary treasurers of the United Auto Workers. Well, he is a cousin of the Yadis family where I found the first set of 78. And so you have these these stories that become really intertwined with some of the larger social and political movements, not only involving Arab American labor history, but just American labor history. You know, and Arab Americans are a part of that narrative and that story. And it's not a story that's not an aspect of that story that gets talked about much unless you're already studying the area of, of Arab American history, um, or you know, you you happen to 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 go to the Arab American National Museum and you see the the photo of of you know George Addis there as well. Then perhaps you can you know you start to make some of those connections. But there's so many things that overlap between Arab American history and African American history and and Latino history for you know for example I mean I think it's the work of uh, Sarah Goltieri I think her most recent work kind of looks at some of the intersections between the Latinx community and the Arab American community and and so and in in some ways you can see similar things in, in terms of of African American communities and history and Arab American history. So for example, at the same time you have the the Penn League 
uh, with Khalil Gibran and Amin Rahani and, and that group in New York, that's all happening roughly at the same time that the Harlem Renaissance is happening, right? One's downtown, one's uptown. <laughs> that it's it's all it's all happening in the same at the same time and literally almost in the same geographic space at least in terms of a city now the the extent to which there's there's serious interaction i haven't found much of that in the 1920s there is more of that my understanding is by the 1940s and 1950s So in some ways, the, the, the community is similar. Their story is similar to the story of, of Arab Americans in many smaller communities in the United States. Like I said, they're unlike some of the larger communities in that they don't get a boost from the second or third wave, right? So if you're in New York, if you're in Boston, you're in Detroit or even like L.A. or, or, or San Francisco like, or something like that, you know, when the second wave of, of, of Arab immigrants begins to come to the United States in in the 1940s or even a third wave after 65, lacrosse doesn't get that kind of boost because it's such a small community that's just kind of struggling and limping along, so to speak. And so the people who are here and who remain here, you know, they have to find a way to, to survive. And so for certain generations, that is, you know, retaining whatever aspects of culture one can and in some cases, that means, you know, these records become that much more valuable because one of the things that happens, as you as you know, without that boost and wave of, of additional people coming who are Arabic speaking, then the second generation born in the United States, the third generation born in the United States, they are much less likely to speak Arabic or they might speak what, what some scholars have called kitchen Arabic, right? I mean, they know the foods, they know the, you know, they might be able to tell you the ingredients using Arabic words, but they're not really conversational and they're certainly not bilingual or able to to read Arabic. And so, you know, the music the music becomes nostalgic or a part of nostalgia for a time where you were young and your grandparents perhaps were here or your parents were here and that's the music that those individuals listen to. So, material culture plays a huge part in creating memory and creating collective memory and nostalgia and and so for at least some, that's true with the 78 RPM records. Elias Wardini, he's more commonly known as Louis Wardini, but he's he's an interesting musician for a number of reasons, but he's he's become one of my favorite because he's so persistent. I've come to admire that about him that I can tell he was born in born in Beirut. He immigrates to the United States about 1904, and from what I can tell, he and his family, you know, land in the one of the more obvious places. So they come through Ellis Island and of course they go almost directly to Little Syria and Lower Manhattan. And so he and the family lived there for some time. I have the sense that he was likely a 
musician or a budding musician anyway, uh, because by 1917, he makes his way to the Victor Talking Machine uh, Company's recording studios. Wardini shows up at Victor. He records. He's an oud player. Obviously, they like what they hear. Um, he records 12 sides on six records. And so he's um, probably, like I said, one of the most recorded on Victor of Arab immigrants to the United States at this at this time period. For a number of reasons, by 1919, 1920, Victor pretty much stops recording Arabic language musicians in the United States. By 1921, you know, he's traveling throughout the United States. He shows up in Louisiana. He's peddling and trying to do other things to earn money. He comes back to New York. Wardini is one of only a handful, though, who records both for the Maloof label and AJ McSood's label as well. So some of those some of those singers and some of those musicians are kind of like exclusive to a label, but for whatever reason that I can't quite figure out, Wardini is one of these people who records quite prolifically on on both Malouf and McSood. And so he has this career in the 1920s, mostly as a musician, and he is traveling, you know, around the, the East Coast, up and down the East Coast in what becomes sort of the, the infant years of the Hafla and the, and the Marajan circuit, um, <laughs> quite interestingly, which, which grows to this sort of huge network of, of cultural and music events by, by the 1940s. But, you know, in the 1920s, it's really kind of a budding circuit. And so, but he does this whole circuit of, of male kite churches, Orthodox churches. Uh, sometimes those churches rent out uh, social halls and, and for events. And so he's playing those events. He by the nineteen by the nineteen thirties, things slowed down because of the depression. But he, you know, he he gets married. But by the nineteen forties, he's back on the music scene, traveling from from place to place, and now meeting up and performing with other musicians, including Wadi Baghdadi, who himself had been a recording artist for McSue. Now he's on the road with other people who had been, you know, performing on these labels in in the 1920s. There's a whole group of Arab American labels that emerge in the 1940s, mostly in uh, mostly in Brooklyn. Some uh, start out in Manhattan and then make their way to Brooklyn. Wardini in 1951 starts his own label. Right. He's like, okay, I've been in a business long enough. I'm just going to start my own label. So he starts his own label, Watertone. What is fascinating and somewhat shocking even to me was that there was a short story written up 
about Wardini and Watertone in Billboard magazine of all places. If you're in Billboard, <laughs> you've reached a level of notoriety where someone is paying attention to what what you're doing. And so in some ways, you know, I can imagine that that there would have been a segment of the population that looked at this and said, oh, you know, I wonder who this Wardini guy is. And, you know, and it says specifically he's, you know, he's recording in Arabic. And and I think it lists the first two singles for his company. But what's, you know, what's really fascinating, like I said, is he's really one of those early pioneers on the Victor label who then, you know, and then records on on Arab American labels and then eventually establishes his, his own label. And so to me, that is a story of persistence. <laughs> you know, his, he, he, he obviously loved his craft. He loves music and he is going to find a way to to play music and entertain um, people however he he can. And, and at the same time, as a musician, you know, he's serving this function of helping people re- retain certain aspects of Arab expressive culture. And so, yeah, it's just he's an interesting character and and he kind of disappears after the 1950s. I, I couldn't really track him down until I found a death notice for him in August of 1990. He died in Beirut. So that means at some point he decides to leave the United States, goes back to Lebanon and he dies there. And so that that explains in part why right you have the disappearance, because he's, he's off the grid in terms of the U.S. press and and no one seems to be looking for him, at least during that time period. So you have musicians like Hordini, you have Jamila Matouk, who, you know, I find fascinating because, frankly, she was the absolute first Arab American 78 I played of all of the group that I found with that first collection at the Addises. For no reason. I just, you know, I was like, oh, okay, let's let's see what this. And so from that moment, I I really tried to, you know, search and figure out what her story is. Um, she's what some people would call a middle period musician. So, and that's because the the height of her performance career is the 40s and the 50s, before the so-called nightclub era, so to speak. Um, but it is clearly, you know, not as early as. Um, some of your early Maloof or Wardini or, or, you know, or some of the other musicians or singers that, that I talk about on the blog. And so her story and the story of Asad Dakrub really kind of capture the complexity of the Makjar and the, and the, the Syrian Lebanese diaspora. Because for Jamila Matouk, you know, she leaves Lebanon but goes to Brazil for a while and lives with family there. That I could tell she seemed to have some relatives in, in Haiti and Cuba as well who had obviously immigrated, 
you know, to those places. And although she's born in 1911, she doesn't come to the United States until the late 1920s, early 19, early 1930s. And she has brothers who are living in Brooklyn. And so when she comes to the United States, finally, um, you know, as an immigrant, then she, because she's come from Brazil, I have my, I have my thoughts about why some of this is happening. So you have some people who come through, uh, who come from places like Brazil or Venezuela, or in the case of Assad Dakrub, who I'll talk about in a minute, he comes through Mexico into Texas. Um, and my thought is that in some cases, these are folks who are really sophisticated about how they are immigrating post Johnson Reed, especially for her. Um, and so it looks very different when you're coming from, say, Brazil, right, than when you're coming from what was still being called Syria and you have this restriction of only 100 people being able to come for, per year. So I don't know if that's exactly what's going on, but I have a feeling that something like that is, is going on. And so places like like Brazil, not only are places where, you know, you also have diasporic communities, but they allow people who want to move in the Western hemisphere between places to, to have that that freedom of movement. And so but she becomes next to Sana and America Daz, she becomes, you know, one of the superstars, so to speak, for Alum Phone. Alum Phone Records was uh, a recording outfit in Brooklyn. It actually started in, in Lower Manhattan's Little Syria as well, but it became it becomes best known for its presence on Atlantic Avenue and that whole community of, of Arabic-speaking people on Atlantic Avenue. But again, she's 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 Alum Phone star. She records. She does the same Hafla Marajan circuit that I mentioned earlier, but that's really developed and really buzzing and filling places to the rafters by this point in the 1940s and the 1950s. She marries uh, and she and she has children. And it's interesting because her, her career kind of fades, but there's a report in the Caravan newspaper, which was an Arab, Arab American newspaper in Brooklyn. You know, and it mentions the fact that she shows up at one of these haflas, but she's in, you know, she's in the audience. She's sitting and she's listening to the music and enjoying, you know, other folks who are up and, and entertaining. And the report says, you know, people recognize her in the crowd. And they're like, oh, it's Jamili Matuk, you know? And so they, they start to cheer for her and clap for her and things like that until eventually she's she's pressured to get up on stage and, and perform. It's, uh, it's quite a fascinating and, and, and fun story because you get a sense that, um, that people really loved her singing and they really loved her. Hey, hey, hey. When I shall hey, hey, hey. 
The last person I will mention that is one of my favorites, and like I said, he I think he also represents some of the complexities of the diaspora, of the Lebanese and Syrian diaspora, is Assad Dakroub. <laughs> Like I mentioned, he comes through Mexico into Texas. He was formally trained in music. He had studied music in Paris, was my understanding, before he had gone to Mexico. He has, you know, a really interesting, a really interesting story in that regard. And he spent some time, you know, and if, if I remember correctly, I think he spent some time in Dakar, Senegal as well. So he interestingly lists the, his destination as Michigan City, Indiana, which both then and now for a smallish Midwest city has a sizable Lebanese American and Syrian American population. Dakrub makes his way through Texas up to Indiana, and he eventually moves to Detroit. His story is unique because he's among that 25% or so who are Muslim, not Christian. And so what's fascinating to me is that the places that Dakarub seems to go are places where there are Syrian Muslim communities. He shows up in Highland Park, Michigan, you know, in the early 1920s at the same time that there's a mosque being established in, in Highland Park, Michigan, and one of the earliest mosques in the in the United States, right? And and so he shows up in the in the directory, the city directory. You know, you can see that he's an, an Arabic language teacher, so he is teaching Arabic in some communities. He's also listed as a music teacher, and so he's doing you know he's doing a little bit of both. But what you have to understand for most Arab American musicians is they could not make livelihoods as musicians, right? We think of musicians now, well, at least some of us do, and we think of big name musicians who can just be singers or be performers and that's it and that's all they have to do. But the fact of the matter is, you know, most of these folks have to work, if not a, a, a nine to five, you know, a, a seven to seven. He stays in the, the Detroit-Dearborn area, at least through the early 1930s. And then he heads west. I'm not sure why, but again, he heads west to communities that, you know, are fairly well established at that, at that point. So he heads to a Syrian-American community in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. I know by listening to your podcast that you, you know, you did an episode on, you know, Syrians in Sioux Falls. So it doesn't come as a surprise to you that he, you know, that he ends up in, in Sioux Falls. But to me, I'm thinking Sioux Falls, what, you know, what's, what's going on? <laughs> so, so, you know, so Dakrub is there. He's an Arabic, he's listed as an Arabic teacher, but, but really he's, he's following those, those, those paths that, other Lebanese and Syrian immigrants had had followed before him. So it begins to make 
sense that he, you know, that he ends up in, in Sioux Falls for a while and then circles back and that I can tell um, spends time in Michigan City again and then moves back to the Detroit to the Detroit area. He recorded for McSood, you know, during the 1920s. And I have several of his his 78s. Many of those were in the, the Addis collection. And so what, when you put these together, right, what you see is this community of musicians. Sometimes they know the other musicians who are recording on a label. Sometimes they, they don't. They are really well connected to the diasporic communities across the United States. But not only that, they're connected in some cases to the diasporic communities in Brazil and Venezuela. Just, you know, they're really representative of, of people who are on the move and are establishing communities around the world, much less across the United States. I remember when I interviewed Fadwa Abed, um, who, you know, was was huge in in the United States in the 1950s, but was even bigger in Lebanon. She's one of the people who is an American-born person of Arab descent who has a musical career here, but she discovers that if she goes to Lebanon, she has a much more lucrative career where there's much more interest. Even though she's born in Los Angeles, she lives most of her life in Lebanon and then doesn't come back to the United States until around the time of the Lebanese Civil War. That time between 50 and the mid-1970s, the 50s and 1970s, she's, she's there and so she has this career. But one of the things she said to me was, oh, well, sometimes Arab American musicians use Motown studios that she, you know, that she personally knows. And I asked her, I said, well, can you document that? Is there anything that, you know, that you can, uh, even a photo that shows, you know, Arab American musicians inside of one of... And she didn't have any documentation, but she suggested that that type of thing was happening. Ian Nagowski does some of this work where he looks at like Naeem Karakhan and Muhammad al-Bakar, I believe, who are playing with Thelonious Monk's bass player, right? And they cut this Jazz Sahara album 
I mean, so by the 1940s and 50s, there is absolutely interaction between musicians. There, these are musicians who are part of the same community. Um, you have African Americans experimenting with Arabic music and hiring Arab American musicians. Of course, Albert Rashid's, and so Albert Rashid ran Al, Al Shark Records in Brooklyn, but his, you know, his his sons talk about people like Malcolm X coming into the store to buy music for for the Harlem Mosque. And so there absolutely there's there's so much waiting to be uncovered. I know Robin Kelly talks a little bit about, like I said, some of that overlap in in uh, Africa Speaks, but there's there's so much more that's left to to uncover. I've always made it my policy to, you know, send a, a, an MP3 or a WAV file to the families just so they have a, a, a digital copy copy of their relative singing. So it, I feel like it's it's the least I could do. Sometimes, particularly with the earlier generations, sometimes those families don't know that their relatives recorded. And so when I contact them, it's out of the blue in the sense that they're like, what, who are you? And lacrosse, Wisconsin. And wait a minute again about, you know, a relative recording something. Sometimes people are just absolutely stunned and flabbergasted, but we talked a lot about commercial recordings. What I also found were homemade family 78s. At least one of the recordings was just labeled. It just said Pauline's wedding party. Do not throw away, right? And so <laughs> I'm like, okay, so what's what's this? I gotta play. I gotta put this on. I gotta play it. I gotta listen to it. What have you got to say? How about some Syrian singing in here? Huh? How about you, Josie? Josie, do you want to say something? Come on, say something. I went to one of the nicest weddings for my one of my best friends, Josie Denny. And where's your husband? And what it what it is is it's a recording. Because none of this from literally that was all that was written. So I have no idea who Pauline is, right? I start to search around in newspapers. And so it turns out that that, that story is of lacrosse-born Pauline Ferris, who is Lebanese-American, marries a guy by the name of Francis Ramia, who is Damascus-born. They get married in April of 1940. In Marysville, Michigan. So that area I said that's just north of Detroit, around the Port Huron area. What you hear on the recording is Pauline speaking to some of the guests who are leaving her wedding. Uh, so some of them clearly are not Arab American um, because they say things like, "Well, you know, I've never been to a Syrian wedding, but this has been so lovely." Oh no, I've got to 
And then you also have friends and relatives who, you know, come up to speak to her and are being recorded and are speaking in Arabic. To me, those pieces of, you know, of material culture and recorded history, like that, it's amazing because it moves beyond kind of the performance, the, the you know, the, the, the documentation meant for public consumption. And it really begins to, to personalize and to put you in touch with this, this, this community and some of the many people who were, you know, living in lacrosse, whether they decided to stay or leave or, or whatever. And, and I can tell you that the family absolutely loved that I, that I digitized it and sent it to them. My wife and, and kids kind of joke, but you know, I get invited to people's family reunions because they know who I am. <laughs> those, those, are the, those are the parts of, of this work that are really rewarding. Uh, where, you know, someone says, you know, that's my grandmother and I, you know, I remember her voice, but only from when I was a little kid and to hear it again just brings back so many memories. I mean, that's, that's the really rewarding and fun stuff for me. So, yeah. <laughs> That's Richard Bro. His website is Midwest Mahjar, and you can visit it at Syrian Lebanese Diaspora Sound.blogspot.com. He was interviewed by Chris Grayton. Of course, as always, you can find more information on our website, OttomanHistoryPodcast.com, including suggestions for further reading, images, and links to the music played in this episode, which comes from the collections of the Addis Mansur and Milan families of Wisconsin. You can also join us on Facebook, where the community of listeners is over 35,000 strong. That's it for this episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Sam Dolby. Until next time, take care.